You're now tuning into the first episode of the Free J-Rod podcast titled From the Streets to the Stars. In this episode, I break down how my brother's guidance and mentorship led me to pursue my dream in becoming an astronaut, despite him being incarcerated. When Jonathan was 16, he took part in a robbery where his friend shot and killed an individual. Jonathan did not shoot anybody. His intention was never to get anybody killed, but he was no angel. His intention was to rob the individual. He was then sentenced to 15 years with the possibility of parole if he had good behavior. To this day, he feels great guilt and remorse behind his actions and has done everything possible to make up for it, doing everything possible to better the lives of others. And now, 10 years down the line, he's been denied parole three times, even though we have proven to them that he has a giant support system waiting for him to come home. But even that doesn't convince him. So now our approach is to get society involved. If the legal manner doesn't work, if the lawyers don't work, then shaking the cage from the outside better work. How can they continue saying that Jonathan Rodriguez is menace to society whenever society is the one begging for his freedom? Free Jonathan Rodriguez. Let's go. Talk about your connection with Scott, Scott Budnick. So, you know, around our community, a lot of people know about my brother's story, and I've always spoke about it since 2018, 2019. I've posted on Facebook before, and I... It got up a lot of attention and now they see the way that he impacted me to my successes and you know doing all this NASA stuff. And I got published in 2019 on the Houston Chronicle. And every time I share something, I've always tried sharing it to politicians or famous people. I even tried sending it to like people like Kim Kardashian. And, and then my brother told me to watch a movie called Just Mercy because he read the book and he asked me to watch the movie. And then it turns out that the producer is the same guy that produced the Hangover movies, Project X, Word Dogs, Old School. And he had made a program called Anti-Recidivism Coalition. It's a program that, that helps prisoners with rehabilitation and adjusting back to society. I looked into it and I was like, man, that's the kind of person I should try to reach out to so he can hear about our story because our story is different, you know. My brother's evidence to change is me. So I, I reached out to Scott. I pretty much stalked him and I was able to connect myself to him. I was just shocked and stunned just because, you know, like I've been trying to reach someone for all these years to help me out with my brother's case, to see him as more than just a number, to see us as human beings and the person that he was is the person that I needed. And then he said, what we can do, we can get Kim Kardashian involved. He was like, what do you think about that? I was like, you're the expert in this. I have no say in this. But I was like, I trust you with, with this. Through him, I was able to meet Kamala Harris and well, he connected me with Common and then his political manager and then his political manager got me access to go inside and, and meet Kamala Harris. I knew nothing about politics. So I didn't know she was running for vice president. I thought, I thought she was just some senator lady. But then after that's whenever I found out what role she played in mass incarceration and all that. Uh, but that's a whole you know, different story. For the viewers that are watching this, what I'm speaking about, it's not a red or blue thing. They're both to blame. They're both the ones that were competing who's tough on crime and showing who had bigger balls. and who can be tougher on everybody, you know, Bill Clinton and Nixon and um, all of them. But it's not, you know, red or blue. It's, it's a humanitarian thing. You, you need to worry for your brother. And it's important for them to be open-minded and open their hearts and to listen to me and to what I'm speaking. Our story begins with, you know, my, my dad came to this land. He was a grape picker in North Carolina. He's just, you know, trying to make a living as an immigrant. He ends up meeting my mom, visiting my people back in Mexico, and then he helps her cross the border, and they start life here. But where the trouble begins to occur, uh, my uncle went missing. That's when my dad started, you know, drowning in sorrows and alcohol. And at the time that my brother needed him the most, because you get to the teenage rebellious stage, that's when my dad was around the least, because, you know, he was 
coping with, trying to cope with this pain. That's when my brother segued, and that's how he found his friend. So, him, that's whenever they started getting into more activities. Just a quick side note, I bleeped out the shooter's name. I did not want to cause conflict between his family and mine. And even before that, you know, my brother and I, you know, since we didn't have the money for it, we would steal toys from Walmart and just, it started escalating from there, you know, little toy soldiers to speakers to pellet guns. And then he started moving on to bigger game. You know, I was still too young at the time, but he started moving on to, you know, robbing people and stuff. And that's whenever him went to go rob this one dude, his last name is Godfrey. They just went up to him, they emptied out his pockets, and then that's said, you know, move out the way. I'm gonna I'm shoot this guy, he told him in Spanish. He just shot him in the head. And that trauma, I remember my brother used to come home really, really drunk, because there was like a, a month period that there was nothing tracing them to the murder. I had never seen him crying. He was crying and describing how the, the skull sounds when it hits the concrete and seeing the brains fall out and stuff like that. Something that a 16-year-old should never do, and of course it doesn't justify it, but it's clearly you know, a traumatic experience that even war veterans have to deal with. So that occurred, and then there was a month gap, and that's when went on to murder someone else. That This was a close friend of theirs. His name's Rafael. My brother didn't take part in that. Uh, he didn't know that was gonna occur at the time he was in there, so that wasn't part of his crime. But that's where you have to put yourself in his shoes. You know, his oldest brother got murdered when he was just like five years old or so. And his youngest brother had Down syndrome, so his parents' attention went towards him and he just lacked a lot of attention. His dad would take him to the mistress's houses and would have to wait in the living room while the dad got done doing his business in the room. So that psychological trauma and all the anger built inside, how do you release it? Who teaches you how to release it? Nobody. And then he went on and committed the murders. At the time, it was a lot more violent. There's a lot more shootings, a lot more murders, drive-bys. I remember when I was like five, my dad taught us to drop to the ground whenever we heard gunshots. And then we just got so used to it. When I was eight, this guy got stabbed in front of our house. And it, it's not like pops. And we ran outside and we seen the guy, you know, he was bleeding. That was when we were little, so we weren't even involved in anything like that, you know. We were just collateral damage. Being around that area, it exposes you to things that makes you be forced into becoming that. The main reason that I empathize so much towards them is that I could have been them. I could have fallen into those steps. The odds are against the poor, so the likelihood of me becoming like them was high. So I feel a lot of pain for them. I have friends that I grew up with in seventh grade that are still stuck in that mindset that I was in as well at that age, but they never got out of it. The only thing that between them and myself is that I had a mentor, I had someone guiding me that was able to make me see a, another path and seeing my mother's heartbreak, how she went through a really deep depression. Not only that, but the victim's mother. That, that pain is deeper than even my mother's because that victim's no longer here, but my mom can still go and visit my brother but just to find a way of healing and preventing that pain by guiding these kids into a brighter path rather than such a dark world, but also removing the barriers that are in place that guides them towards that direction because it just becomes like common sense if you remove all the opportunities. Um, did Jonathan play a part in that? He played the biggest role in the empathy part. Going to visit prisons and his friends all being prisoners, it allowed me to see them as people. Right. Once he's free, you know, it's kind of like he'd be given a whole lot of water all at once. And he's not going to know how to handle his true freedom that he was he once had. That happens over and over again. You you release these guys and they were never rehabilitated. They just become institutionalized. It becomes a deeper problem than it was before they went in. 
Although I would say that doesn't apply to my brother just because our situation is different. Um, like his best friend, he was incarcerated with him for about five years or so. He was telling me, he's like, your brother's different. He never got used to it. That was never his home. He's a visitor there. I think for him, it'll be smooth for him to come home. But yes, for the 99% of the other guys, you need to help these guys out and you need programs that help them get back into society. But the problem is that these programs that they have now, they're useless, like the one of my brothers had right now. So about three months ago, he called us and he told us, hey, um, I'm getting sent to this program and after I finish it, I'll be sent home. And he gets sent there. And that day was, it was a really bright day and after 10 plus years of waiting for him to come home and for us to get that good news. And finally he came and he told us, hey, I'm gonna go home. I've never realized that my life was normal. It's like when you live with the pain like that for so long, you know, he's been in, in there half my life. And when you live with that for so long, you just don't realize that it's there. You know, you just become used to it. It just felt like a cloud being removed from on top of us. The rainy days were over. But then the, the trust issues came. You have a lot of trust issues towards the system because it's felt as many times. And I started thinking, I was like, we shouldn't get our hopes up. We should be careful. You know, it's not over till it's over. And I get home and then my brother calls and he's like, hey, some of the counselors are telling me I am going to go home. Some of the other counselors are telling me, telling me I'm not. And they're everywhere. I'm confused. And there's 30 other guys that are in here that are on the same boat. And he said since the 1960s, everybody that has ever been sent to that program goes home after six months. My brother was a first batch of 30. Yeah, it doesn't apply to them. But these counselors were not told that. So they were giving false information and taunting, pretty much taunting someone with their freedom. Although they may have not done it purposely, it's still the same result. If I punch someone in the face, it's still gonna hurt them the same whether I do it accidentally or on purpose, you know what I mean? So it just shows how unprofessional they are behind miscommunication, because you can't. Taunting someone with the freedom can cost them so much. You know, they can lose themselves. That was the hardest time of my brother's life. That was harder than the time that he was waiting on his sentencing, whenever they were telling him that he was going to get 45 to life. So for him to have gone through that, it was hard on all of us. Because you get that, you know, that bright light, you show it to us and then you just take it away and then go back to, you know, square one. The only bright thing that came out of that, it showed me how the world will be after my brother's home. It allowed me to see a normal life that I can look forward to that I had never seen. It clearly shows that this program makes it way harder for someone to get ready to come home rather than, you know, making it a smoother ride. So the reason my brother struggled so much is because the guards there, they know that all these guys are gonna follow the rules because they don't wanna lose their chance for freedom. But with my brother's case and the 30 others, they're not guaranteed freedom. So he's been having to deal with these guards that are constantly pressing people's buttons because they can, because they, they have that. A little paper on top of their head, you know, we're gonna get or you're not. Let me speak on the medical side of the prison system. That's one side that I wasn't exposed to for a while. Well, five years ago, my brother found lumps in his prostate. He wanted to get it checked, but he had seen so many wrongdoings behind the medical staff. There was three different occasions, three different guys. They would go ask for assistance and they would come out with no help. And all those three guys died because they didn't get proper assistance. In, in the same prison that time? In the same prison. So this is at the Robertson unit. Those three guys died. So my brother clearly has trust issues towards the medical side. Not that they cost this, but they didn't help. In the same treatment, someone outside 
they weren't given nowhere near close to that same treatment. Yeah, exactly. So he, he left it alone and the bump started getting bigger. And then he got transferred to a minimum security prison about a year ago. At this prison, he finally was like, okay, I'm at a better prison. Let's see if I can get assistance with this. So he went to the doctor and the doctor He's like, it's not cancerous. And then my brother told him, like, can you at least do a blood test? Can you do a pee test to get a better answer? And the doctor started getting aggravated. He said, come back in five years and see, see how bad it gets again. I don't know how many deaths have occurred in the prison system that could have been prevented. Like one of my friends was telling me, he's like, imagine someone with a migraine and imagine someone with a brain tumor. These people were gonna give both aspirin. One of the letters my brother wrote me, he was describing, Imagine feeling envious towards the way that they treat a dog. They're treated worse than an animal. You know, they're not worried about actual change and helping these guys. They're just there for a check and go home and that's it. So I, I shared a post in 2019 about the mistreatment my brother has faced. So my brother, he loves to read books. He was reading in the center of the lobby. There was like 100 plus men in a small room. If you're going to this room, you're locked in there for four hours. As he's reading a book, one of the guards has an argument with one of the inmates and she gets mad at him. So she tear gases all of them. And as she tear gassed all of them, my brother couldn't breathe, you know, he's asthmatic, so he was struggling a lot. He remembered that this OG told him that if that ever happened, to run to the toilet and flush the toilet and breathe the air from below the sewer. So that's what he did. And the prison knew that, that this happened and they just hid it away. Another one is one time that the prisoners were acting bad, the prison shut down the sewers for a week or two. So it was just overflowing and poop and just residue and they couldn't shower. All they had were sinks. They were only able to take bird baths, what they call them. They're just sitting on a sink and just washing themselves, just butt naked. And he has endless stories to tell you how the prison system abuses these prisoners. All these things go unheard of because they can go unheard of. You know, they're, they're criminals, so you don't have to be fair. So I remember whenever we would go visit my brother at the juvenile, he said that in a waiting area, he was around this little boy that was just crawling all around. He said he had to be nine years old. He was a prisoner in there. He seen him crying one night. And he went up to him, he was like, hey, everything's gonna be okay. And the kid was like, no, I killed a cop. You know, everything's not gonna be okay for the kid. When you kill a cop, that's a, that's a very serious crime. But they really think that this kid is a natural born monster. It's like, no, this kid needed guidance. And clearly there's something very terrible, but something very terrible must have occurred to him to have caused that. We went into the room to visit my brother. He came out and I seen him walking with chains. It was the first time I ever seen him as a prisoner. I started crying and he came in and he was mad at my parents because they brought me into the prison. He didn't want me to see, see him like that or see stuff like that. In the juvenile, you have a limited amount of people that can visit you. It's only two adults and then anybody that's like under like 10 years old. So this entire time, 12 plus years of dealing with this, we haven't been able to be as a family all six of us. What we would do, he would ask us to stand across the building of the juvenile so he could see us from afar and feel like he's with us. So we would go stand across the street and he would see us and he would feel close to us. But then as we would leave, he would see us leave without him. Imagine having to feel that at 16 years old. No child should ever have to experience feeling abandoned by their family because our state requires it. Of course, you know, people need to be punished, but in a proper way, in a proper form, in a rehabilitative form. I think generational curses played a big role into what occurred that led to Jonathan's situation. You know, I love my parents and they've been the best parents that they possibly could, but we speak openly about how some aspects led to certain qualities in us that now we're trying to fix. So Jonathan was the one that was always physically abused. They would always hit him. 
he was always a obnoxious one and the one that would always get in trouble because that's the way he coped with things. That's the way he got attention from dad. My parents' love was always very deep and strong, but their punishment was also really strong. But that's all they knew. That's all their parents taught them. And hitting was always the way to go, you know? I don't know how much I can touch upon this. I guess legally, if I have to edit it out, I'll edit it out. Um, but my brother's situation. So whenever that murder happened, that month long period, my mom, so my mom didn't know how to deal with my brother. She had no resources, she had no Google, no programs. Her last resort was just calling the cops. So she found pistols behind the washing machine. So she called the cops and then the cops came and raided the house. They found you know, all the weapons in the house, probably around seven weapons. A week prior to that, my brother was trying to hide the weapon that we used for the murder and a shed we had in the back. I was out there with him at the time. I knew something had occurred with that, but I didn't know the details of it. You know, I was I was young. He didn't tell me that information. He was like, hey, hide it from me. It was just this shotgun the size of me. You know, I was a tiny kid. My mom had this stand on the corner of the shed. I shoved it back there and that's where I hid it. We were hiding away from mom, you know? Then when the cops came and they were raiding the house, they went to go check the shed. And as they had my brother handcuffed in the, in the patrol vehicle in the back. And I can see his, his shadow kind of like leaning, trying to tell me to go towards the shed. So I, I tried to run back there, but it's just, you know, cops all around, probably about 10 or so. They told me to go back in, so I went back in. And whenever I had to go back in, it was just like, that's it. That's the end of pretty much my brother. Then the cops came out, they found all the other weapons, and then they left and I ran to the shed. They took my brother with them, I ran to the shed and I checked behind it and then the, the shotgun was still there. I was telling my coworker about that recently because I, I never really spoke about it because the legal stuff behind it, I guess. He was like, the craziest part is that your fingerprints were on it. Imagine if that would have traced back to you. You know, I was 12, I was of age. As soon as I see this, this weed growing, let's cut it off and let's take it in. What if my life would have detoured and left towards that path? What if I would have became a criminal, a felon? You know, all these words that they want to label you as. Just a quick interruption. There was a very crucial part that I left out of the story. And that was that the weapon was eventually found in the shooter's possession. But if the weapon would have been found in my brother's possession, he would have taken the full blame for the shooter's crime because he was so loyal to him at the time. They were like brothers. But then, as it was later found in the shooter's possession, and they were fighting their court cases, the shooter ended up trying to blame my brother for his first murder and that's when my parents were able to open up my brother's eyes to see that the loyalty wasn't reflected. It's insane to think how life could have diverged into another path just for that little moment in time where the cops did not find a weapon in my brother's possession. My brother would have been serving a life sentence and I would have been caught up in a prison system as well. But thankfully that didn't occur and where am I now? You know, I'm working in NASA, working on my bachelor's degree, I'm gonna become an engineer and you know I have other goals and dreams. It shows that people change. That's not the solution. It's never been a solution. But we just don't go out looking for the real answers. And that's what she'd be doing. Like when my mom would call the cops on him, all the cops would tell her is that they knew he was going to commit a crime. And once he committed the crime, they would come and take him. They couldn't take him if he hadn't committed a crime. But instead of telling her, like, we know your son's going to commit a crime, why not prevent the crime? Direct her to proper resources. But yeah, like, all the facts, like, one in three African-Americans will go to prison. One in six Hispanics will go to prison. One in 17 whites will go to prison. But then you, you go back to the, the likelihood of doing drugs. The white kids in the suburbs are seven times more likely than the kid, poor kids in the ghetto to do drugs. But where are the cops at? But I'm not saying they, they should be punished as harsh as they punish us. I'm saying they should judge us like they judge them. And they, they know that that drug phase can be a stage. And, you know, these kids can change. But the way they see it is that these white kids can 
make a mistake, but these black and brown kids are the mistake. That's where the judgment behind that is terrible and the war on drugs and we should have dealt with that as a mental problem. But at the time it was just tough on crime, punish these guys, that's the solution. But no, the prison system creates more crimes. Most kids that have families that fall into prison will fall into prison as well. Most kids aren't in the case that I am, that I was able to have my brother's guidance to get me out of the mindset to overcome that. So it's just a snowball effect. You keep taking the father's away, you keep taking the brothers away and these headless chickens trying to figure it out. Not to sound judgmental, but that's how we were, trying to figure out life. So we need change behind that. You had mentioned that you're in the Houston Chronicle and a couple of accolades. Do you just like to expound on them? Just, um, just where you are? What was the initial impact that led you to your successes? All I needed as a kid was someone to believe in me more than I believed in myself. And that was my brother. That's what all these lost kids need. They need someone to believe in them more than they believe in themselves. Thanks to that, I was able to find my career path and experience test different areas out as well without being fearful. That led me to engineering. I got connected with my professor. His name is Professor Wiggins. He also played one of the biggest roles in my engineering life. He introduced me to a different world. So I was working on undergraduate research with him for NASA. I got two publications. We were studying acoustic wave suppression, so turning off fire in space using sound, making a, a universal fire extinguisher. And then another one I worked on was um, Swarm Robotics. So we're using autonomous robots that communicate with each other. Sort of like ants, in a sense, think by themselves to explore a planet. That was a competition. I worked on that for two years. We won first places on the portion that I was in charge of. Through that, I was able to apply for internships. I applied to, what was it, 53 internships. And finally, on the 53rd one, I landed the one where I'm at now. Part of that is because, you know, lack of connections. I don't have an uncle that works at NASA or all the engineering companies. So it's a lot harder for someone that's coming in from the outside to step in. I work for the NASA cargo mission contractor. So everything that goes to space goes through us. We get the hardware, like the astronaut suits, the tools and expensive things. The, the most expensive thing I've seen was a $23 million space toilet. That, <laughs> that, um, <laughs> oh, you, you have to understand that things work differently in space, you know, yeah, no, yeah. No, no gravity. So a lot of research goes into it. Thanks to my brother's impact, I've been able to pursue my childhood dream of becoming an astronaut. As a kid, that's always what I wanted to be, always what I wanted to do, but as you get old, it's like society diminishes your dreams and it belittles you to think that you can't achieve this. And for a while, I believed that. For a long time, I believed that. And then when I got to college, I was able to find the confidence that I needed to pursue that, not only to fulfill my childhood dream, but to inspire these kids that are born like me, that are raised like me, that they can do it too. But the role that I'm also playing is I want to remove the barriers that they will have to face because the melanin of their skin is darker. And our ultimate dream, which is far greater and far more important than the astronaut dream, is for my brother and I to open an institution where we can help these kids. Because all these kids that are in prison, even the grown men that were kids that were in prison, they were rebellious children that just needed to be directed into the right direction that lost their path and they went into the wrong direction. These guys are geniuses. Then you follow the structure that society expects you to follow or the public schools expect you to follow. They broke out of it in a negative way. Let's break out of them in a positive way and create these geniuses, these Einsteins, these Michelangelos, you know? We would like to create an institution where we could hone these skills and take them out the hoods as well. When you're stuck in that environment, you're stuck in that mindset and that's all you're exposed to, just the same way we were all exposed to. So imagine taking them out to 
nature or somewhere. They've never seen beautiful trees or even cities. When I was a kid, we never went to downtown. The only time I went to downtown was to visit my brother in prison, even though we lived 20 minutes away from downtown. If you make them see that this world is greater than just their small little neighborhoods and take them out the bubble, it can help them escape from that mindset. Our dream is to open an institution. We, that's, that's our plan and we gotta find a way. We're gonna find a way to do that and impact these kids. Like I said, all these kids ever needed was someone to believe in them more than they believe in themselves. The power of being able to think by myself is what he gave me. Being able to have these intellectual conversations and just expand our minds together, that really played the biggest role. Obviously the pain, I feel like a lot of people cope with their pain very differently. And thankfully I was able to turn that pain into wisdom and develop myself. Because the way he was following before and I was just following him, we would have just ended up dead. And he made sure that I didn't fall into that. He gave me those, I guess, the blueprint. And I did the rest on my own, of course, because that's a journey that you have to do on your own to fully figure yourself out. I would sometimes record our conversations. Like I have a conversation of us when I was 15 or so. We were talking and you could tell how much he wanted to talk to me. But it was obvious that I wanted to go outside and play. So as I look back to that video and listen to our tones, it just saddens me how I missed out on being the brother that I should have been for a while, but it's because I was a little, I didn't really think about stuff like that. It was so clear that he wanted to continue talking and he needed that conversation with his brother. Was there anything of any like memories that kept you going? Yeah, ton. All the memories that, you know, kept me going. Even the bad things we did are the things I hold on to. I want to, it's a crazy story kind of. We had a large pellet gun and we would go to this clear land that was down the road. We would lay on the ground like hunters and cars would pass by and we would shoot their windows out. And, <laughs> and as, they, <laughs> as they passed by, they would speed away and then one truck stopped. I guess they seen our reflection. It was in the middle of the night. My mom didn't know, nobody knew. And they drove around. They had to go around the block to come towards the entrance of the field. As that happened, we ran through the field. So it was this large clear field and in between there was this forest area and then there was our house. So in the forest areas where we would do the war movies and clubhouses and all these trails. And in the field, we would play soccer and kickball. So in the field, that's where we were shooting these guys. We ran through the field, we ran through the forest and just thorns. And we jumped the fence and then we jumped through our window. We were looking out the kitchen and then the truck was looking for us, but we were long gone. Now that I look back at, at that, it's clearly wrong and you're hurting people's property. But they're good memories now. Uh, <laughs> your brotherhood memories. Okay, are you ready? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, come on, let's go get the other one.